Dear Miss Wallace, I have finally worked up enough courage to write you. I am your greatest fan, because unlike the others, I want nothing from you. The only thing that matters to me is your happiness. I am a friend, and I am someone you can turn to in times of distress. But I know the time is now right. We will be lovers very soon, my darling. And believe me, I have all the necessary equipment to make you very, very happy. You got a really raunchy letter from that weirdo fan I tried to tell you about. I think she's taking advantage of you. Sally, he's driving me crazy. I recommend you fire. I recommend you fire. What in God's name did you say to him in your letter? I don't pay you to upset my fans. You don't even know your fans. I'm the one that has to put up with him. He's the one that's gone too far. He wants to be your lover, for Christ's sake. What was I supposed to do, give him an appointment? I want to touch you. I want to make love to you. Just ignore him from now on. He's harmless. Miss Goldman? very quickly and I feel glad because I never wanted her to suffer. We're dealing with a psychotic, a potential killer. Am I safe, Inspector? Who knows? He's after me now, isn't he? Back to the show, everybody. Welcome back. <sighs> we have a 1981 double feature. This movie—I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, we just did *Mommy Dearest*, and this movie came out also in '81. Oh, also a Paramount release. How about that? How about that? Well, I mean, this movie was a thrill a minute, I have to say. But Love everybody it. out there listening, fans of the show, my name is Pete, and I'm Scott, and, and these, these are, are the movies, movies that, that made, made us gay. gay. Oh, goodness gracious, Scott. We have a very special guest. I mean, we we an fun Instagram guest. celebrity as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> well. because Jeff, I love your page. <laughs> Jeff Nelson from Jeffrey Mixed. Your Instagram is so amazing. Welcome I love it. Welcome to the show. You guys are very kind. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I'm often surprised that my uh, campy sensibility uh, has gone the distance and has attracted Many of people that uh, seem to be on the same page and have a sense of humor, and I literally am grateful for the commentary that happens every day. It's a lot of people are fun, and it's a blast to do. And I literally, I was just telling this to somebody the other day, it's literally my sensibility 100% authentic. I can't explain it any other way. People are like, <laughs> how do you come up with this stuff? I'm like... I'm just being me. It's the eyes of Jeffrey Mars. You know? <laughs> it's definitely awesome. our brand of bullshit at Movies the oh, Latest yeah. Day. So we love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank so you. we watched The Fan from 1981. So The Fan was a movie that I think that 
our guest our guest and friend of the pod Tim Murdoch I think told us about this movie on like episode four when we were doing Poltergeist three. He's just like, have right. you guys seen the fan? And I'm just like, the Wesley Snipes like baseball movie. <laughs> and soon, all of these people, all of my friends, just started mentioning the fan. We mentioned earlier off mic our friend Mike Toscano, who's done the show numerous times, has talked about this movie. I originally reached out to Mike to do this movie, and he's just like, well, you should have Jeff Nelson on because he works for Shout Factory. He did the commentary. He is like the fan expert. So you are the perfect guest for this episode. Well, that what a high honor. To be <laughs> yeah. a, I mean, and 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 what's funny is that yes, um, I I am a marketing director for Scream Factory, and I co-founded that brand, and we put out all these crazy horror films and sci-fi films, mm-hmm. and never thought I'd see the day where we would release the fan. And when we got that title, I was like, I will take this one over, guys. <laughs> I know this one, and. Uh, so when we put it out, uh, whatever, fall of 2019, a lot of um, uh, ducks in a row just came together. Michael Bean came to the table to be interviewed, and I got some great people on the commentary, David DelVal and David Dakota. And, uh, but at the time, I purposely, to my coworkers, to my friends on my Instagram page, I made myself as an obsessive fan to make this kind of meta as a fan obsessed about a movie called the fan about an obsessed, the fan. And I just had a lot of fun with it. And uh, so now my reputation is still, uh, I guess it'll be locked with this film. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, So like we said, this is from 1981. I feel like it, it has a, a very cult, very niche following. Yeah. Right. Um, and we did watch uh, the Blu-ray, and the the Michael Bean interview was very interesting for a lot of reasons, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not the least of which is when he says, you know, people come up to me all the time because he has this genre following, yeah. and I love Michael Bean from you know Aliens and and Terminator and all of that, but when he said, hey, you know, when people come up to me today, when grown men come up to me and say. I love the fan. He's like, oh, they're gay. And I'm just like, Usually I, a friend of Dorothy. I love that. That's yeah. so amazing. <laughs> so off camera, uh, maybe before that interview, because I actually interviewed him personally, mm-hmm. uh, we had talked about that film for a long time on just the gay fan following. Right. First, I have to say to anybody that's listening is that Michael Bean? I've I've been fortunate to have interviewed a few celebrities in my time. I'm a little older. <laughs> uh, Michael Bean was one of the most down to earth, real and blunt like actors I'd ever spoken to. And on this specific topic, he asked me like. Why does this have such a gay following? And I <laughs> went through like a list of everything. He was really receptive to me. Um, and he didn't have a problem. He said that he probably had a little bit of a kind of not problem, but a little bit of a he didn't take to the film after it came out and for years for a while because it didn't have a good reputation. Right, yeah. Um, and it is, as you guys said, a niche following, whatever. But as the years went on, he's come to sort of accept that, like, oh, okay, I got a gay following in this. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And, uh, and when I told him all the reasons, he cracked up. He was not, as you guys heard on that Blu-ray, um, you know, you have a big diva in this film, Lauren Bacall. Yeah. That's not 
one that gay men are going to be attracted to. And uh, he didn't have a good time with her. And, uh, she didn't have a good time with mm-hmm. him. And, yeah. Uh, said a lot of words off camera that didn't <laughs> get down to the interview about her. Wow. But he was he was a blast. And I love the fact that he was relaxed with me, totally got it. And, uh, you know, there were some things you could tell in that interview where we were saying it, where he might have been a little, I wouldn't say nervous, but mm-hmm. a little kind of like uh, slightly uncomfortable talking right. about it. But trust me, he was, he gets it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really cool because I grew up with Michael Bean. I mean, yeah. I, I love, same. you know, the, the big characters that, you know, that he's talked about and to, to see him be candid about it and kind of you never know right you you never know if he's going to be like not appreciative of a certain fan base and i think that definitely aside from the fan he does have like a like a gay geek following because mm-hmm. i mean Kyle Reed he's so cute he's like so he's handsome just and, so he's handsome, handsome as Kyle in, in the these Terminator. movies you know and so i think like the like gay nerd following out there is just like oh calories whatever but then yeah throw Lauren Bacall into the mix um <laughs> i feel like i uh probably from following your account just have this knowledge of high point coffee commercials i look forward to my sixth cup as much as my first one that's because my coffee's high point decaffeinated i don't need caffeine i'm active enough thank you but that's just one reason this coffee lover chooses High Point. Oh, that aroma's wonderful. Just look at this deep, rich color. But you know what really matters to coffee lovers? This. Mmm. Deep and rich. Flavor this good has to be deep brewed into a coffee. High Point coffee. <laughs> I can't even do a Lauren Bacall. High Point coffee. Ah, uh, the flavor. Um... That I mean, those obviously are from the same time period, right? Yeah. Yeah, and just the camp of those late 70s, early 80s commercials where they would talk to you. They would talk to mm-hmm. the camera. And the right. fact that it's Lauren Bacall talking to me about instant coffee is, I mean, <laughs> and, so And she would amazing. sometimes be like rehearsing a play and it would just be kind of a candid moment and she would just <laughs> talk to you, the viewer, through the TV about coffee. She was on it. She was. It's interesting that she took this role. And, you know, um, this movie, you know, uh, sorry if I'm schooling people and you guys have already heard it, but I'll just go into it a little no, bit. No, please. Movie was based on a, on a, on a best selling book. And it was nabbed by the producers who did uh, Grease and Saturday Night Fever, Robert Stigwood. Robert who Stigwood, was, yeah. Family, uh, also family. Um, and, I believe in the some of the stuff that made it in the Blu-ray and some didn't that like I think Elizabeth Taylor was considered for this role of Lauren Bacall's wow. role in the film. I think even Shirley MacLaine, I think even Anne Bancroft. Um that's a lot of ladies. And I guess mm-hmm. the yeah. script the script was a lot different. By the time they got Lauren Bacall, Lauren Bacall was doing Broadway at this time. She was doing those high point commercials. Mm-hmm. Um it was still regarded as like Hollywood royalty from, you know, all the years ago. And so she was kind of riding a little bit high. So it kind of made sense that, you know, she was playing lead and that she would be attracted to this film. Mm -hmm. But somehow down the line, what was put in front of her and what she signed up to be, which was supposed to be some psychological thriller turned into 
dressed to kill Friday the 13th yeah. <laughs> film mixed in with stuff. She was not happy with the outcome, um, uh, even though her name was top bill, you know, whatever. It, it, it's a it's a interesting mess of a film. Right. Michael Bean, you know, he was an unknown. Um, he'd been in a couple of little dinky films or whatever, mm-hmm. but this was supposed to be his like breakout and well, we're talking about him. So they did, you know, they did something right on a following, but this movie was not a hit. We'll go into all those reasons why, yeah. um, but it's just interesting. Cause Lauren Bacall, like I said, I could see probably not that I could think exactly like her, but she's like, Oh, I'm a leading role. And there's not a whole lot of movies out there for a leading role with a woman of her age at mm-hmm. that time. Um, be like, oh, sure, let me sign it up. But what she signed up for and what ended up happening, well, now it's that's why it's a gay favorite. Right. <laughs> and also kind of putting yourself in Lauren Bacall's shoes of when you find out this psychological thriller that's almost kind of recalling Clint Eastwood's play Misty for me, but just mm-hmm. kind of a gender swap with it. And yep. kind of when Lauren McCall kind of found herself in this elevated slasher movie, she probably goes to her her kind of her peers of this is what happens when actresses age out and they just start doing genre movies. And that's probably not what Lauren Bacall really saw herself doing in no, 1981 it, at the it, time. It, it's funny because if you're Robert Stigwood, the producer, and mm-hmm. if you're Paramount Pictures who picked this up because it was originally uh, speaking of Dress to Kill, it was originally from the production company that did Dress to Kill. Um, at the time in 1981, you had all these slasher films that were going big time. Friday the 13th and Prom Night and yeah. Terror Pain and My Bloody Valentine. All these movies were swirling around. I think that the marketing department and Paramount, and my guess is that they wanted to have their cake out of that. Mm-hmm. And they positioned the film as a slasher film. If you look at any of the TV spots or the poster or the trailer, there's no mention of Lauren Bacall or <laughs> Marie. Stapleton or Jim <laughs> Gardner. It's about the fam, and which is weird because you have these big heavyweights. Yeah. Why would you target their audiences? But since those audiences are older, you know what I mean. And then, but then younger audiences into Friday the Thirteenth would look at something of the fan and be like, "Who are these?" I hate to say it, old people running right. around in the theater getting slashed. This isn't, Jim. <laughs> this isn't, I, I, I need teenagers, you know, in a summer camp. Like this isn't, you know, it's such an odd mix. Yeah, definitely. That's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think today a modern viewer kind of would look at it and, and see that psychological thriller aspect of it, you know, like while there is someone running around with a straight razor and, you know, stabbing the help and all of that, um, yeah, it doesn't quite fit into the the teen slasher genre of the early '80s. So I can I can see where they were going, but I can also see why people might have been, you know, upset about it. I think I read in like IMDb trivia that James Garner was just like, "Oh, that piece of trash!" Like he didn't really care for it either. Yeah, the other thing too, the unfortunate. I mean, the fan actually holds better now than it did when it came out because when it came out. Uh, John Lennon was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jodie Foster had an obsessive fan uh, at the time there was a bunch of these 
in the news kind of stories that were happening that was novel at the time or new at the time of having these these celebrity stalker type of things. So Paramount had that fine line of like, they weren't and they were directly trying to draft off of it. Mm -hmm. But I think with Reagan being shot at the time, uh, the Pope, all this kind of stuff, I think people were just not in the mood to see like something called the fan. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that they were there. Um, and then plus all the, the other marketing mistakes of like, well, why wouldn't you call out Lauren Bacall? Why wouldn't you like do other? I think that she probably, her and James Gardner probably were like, don't put my name on this. Right. Sure. They, there had to have been some behind the scenes, like, I don't want to, if I don't want to be associated with this, you know, piece of garbage or whatever. <laughs> and, and yet it's not a piece of garbage. Right. Um, guys watch this. It's a well done film. Beautifully photographed. Moments, but it's it's classy-ish. It's not dressed to kill, but it's it's elevated. It is not motel hell. Right. You know? No no offense <laughs> to motel hell, but you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they wrote and choreographed a musical within this movie. That's a lot of work. <laughs> that it, I mean, there's um and the choreographer arlene phillips i mean she's a well-known i mean there was a tim rice who, the lyricist uh, uh the editor who uh alan heim who did all that jazz um the score by pino dinaggio who did carrie and dress to kill there's a there's a a polishedness to this film that you don't normally see but then the straight razor murders come in and some of the graphic stuff and you're like whoa i <laughs> expected and then as we're here talking about it, all of the gay overtones, mm -hmm. undertones, like it's dripping with gay without saying gay. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, throughout the whole film. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, we've watched uh, Cruising for the podcast, you know, um, dress to kill all, the, all those movies. And it definitely has that kind of, that kind of vibe, but this particular movie, I feel like it's, it's quick. It's snappy. You know, it's like, it goes by in, what is it? 90 minutes. And that's a pretty quick yeah, pace to that. it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really well paced, especially for, you know, a movie of that era, um, for again, for, for modern viewers. Um, the, our main, like, older stars in it you know lauren bacall maureen stapleton this character pretty I much love. just playing the thelma ritter role from all about eve <laughs> pretty much um and james garner with the three of them uh, the amount of like smoker voice like <laughs> action in this movie yeah. with the three i'm just like oh my goodness i love i just love that like you know, that just kind of voice and timber. And then Lauren Bacall is in there with that, like, you know, mid-Atlantic thing going on. Well, and Lauren Bacall's character in the film, uh, from the interviews that you saw and, and the conversations I had off camera with some of the, the talent, mm -hmm. it wasn't a stretch for her to be a bittered, you know, <laughs> older, uh, you know, demanding kind of now they want me to be in this cockamamie musical type of diva type mm -hmm. of thing. Um, it doesn't feel like it was so removed from where she was at the time. Right. Which, of course, for us gay guys, we <laughs> love seeing women and especially 
stars that are maybe past their quote unquote prime sort of going for broke in a sleepy mm-hmm. kind of like, I mean, it's, it, it, it goes back to the, whatever happened to baby Jane thing. There is something about yeah. divas doing that kind of thing. And their later part of the career. And, and, you know, to his credit, Ryan Murphy has been able to do that successfully and not, and, and, and I'm not saying that um, uh, Jessica Lange and, and some of the actresses or whatever that he has chosen there in any sort of sleazy, but he's been able to take those, that same uh, principle of taking a diva mm-hmm. uh, or sort of past her quote unquote prime and putting her into a contemporary new thing and making it work. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. I mean, Absolutely. what makes Ryan Murphy so remarkable in TV that he casts women that should be working more. It was like Sharon Stone and Ratchet. It's just like how much fun was her was how much fun was that to see her in that type of role? Because we don't really see Sharon Stone in, in roles right. like that anymore. Right. Well, I mean, I look at what he does for Kathy Bates, even just in right. general. Yeah. That's one of, she's one of my favorite actresses. And he continues to give her work, and that is a plus. So Going back, we're going off script, of course. Well. <laughs> back to the back to uh, the fan. Uh, you mentioned cruising, and you mentioned just to kill. One of the things I wanted to bring up too is that another thing that's fascinating about this film is that it was made in New York City at a mm-hmm. time when New York City was one of the most dangerous, yeah, grimy New York possibly be, and there were so many movies at that time that were set in New York, like. Cruising and Dressed to Kill, um, Maniac, uh, Eyes of Laura Mars, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Taxi Driver, The Warriors, Escape from New York. I mean, The Sentinel, you could go on and on and on and on. And the fact that the fan is also there is just another like, yeah, well, here you go. We're living in New York. You, know? <laughs> you guys call it disco noir on the commentary. Disco, yeah. I love that. <laughs> after, after Clute... Um, in the early 70s happened, Eyes of Laura Mars really kind of opened up that door. That's what Faye Dunaway, right? The kind of thriller. And then Dress to Kill really did it well. But let's be honest, it was also cheap for filmmakers like Maniac or Don't Go in the House or whatever like that just to, you know, drive up Times Squares and and film some sleazy scenes and then move on. But um, it's interesting because I'll look at the locale Whenever I watch the fan, the subways, which mm-hmm. of course rest to kill, is a very similar sequence, and just some of the skyline and stuff. But it just represents another. It's another layer that I love about the fan. It's because New York now is definitely not the New York it yeah. was back in the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I love that one of the first things we see is just um, what is the name of the show that she's in. Oh, uh, uh, never say uh, wait, never. Hold on. What was? What, what, what'd you say? Never say never. Never say never. Never say never. Um, it's just up there in lights. Her name, you know. It's just, and then it pans down to her at the stage door. Um, yeah, just the just the whole idea of of putting on a show and you know the rehearsals and coming out of the stage door and all of the fans just going mm-hmm. right up to her and having this access, you know, to to this woman. How that. Uh, you guys said that it was a stunt woman that takes the pen out of her hand. If you watch that actress in that scene, the look on her face, and when she grabs that pen and bolts across the street and then trips, <laughs> it's so good. It's it, it's very crazy. But what I love about it, though, of course, 
is that Michael Bean trips her. Yeah. And yes. It's kind of like, okay, you think you're a fan. Ha. Huh. Like you're nothing. And, but it's still <laughs> another level of like, like you realize something's wrong with Michael Bean because you know, he just pulled this, you know, poor woman and just stuck, you know, who should not have stolen a pen in the first place from Lauren McCall. But then it's an awesome opening scene. I really like uh, how the movie starts. And then, of course, it shows um, Michael and Lauren both leaving to their prospective homes in an mm-hmm. alone kind of eerily similar path. Yeah. But. Neither one of them, you know, obviously only Michael knows Lauren exists and Lauren has absolutely no idea, but they're both alone. And there's a weird kind of thing in this film, and I touched upon it on the commentary. Um, you know, as much of the campy numbers uh, are there and mm-hmm. there's Lauren Paul and there's some outrageous moments. And then there's the, I'm sure we'll talk about the gay rooftop scene. Um, <laughs> there is a... There is a uh, a little bit of a, a sadness, a little bit of a current that goes throughout the mm-hmm. film because Michael, like, look, we all love our divas, our singers, our actors, our actresses or whatever. I would like to think that none of us would go to the extent of Michael <laughs> But there is that, there is that like, oh, I, I like you, I'd like for you to like me type of thing. And that runs current through the whole thing. It's kind of like what you said about playing Misty for me. It is a reverse kind of thing mm-hmm. on that. And it plays on that same type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And we can can all as gay men and even like straight people too, just relate to idolizing someone so much. And you Mm -hmm. just think if I were to just meet this person, we would be the best of friends. (laughs) Like that just needs to happen. If it can happen, like my life will be complete. Do you know how many probably gay men probably think that of Madonna? Oh my goodness. (laughs) I'm kind of, but I'm, I love Madonna, but I've, would never meet her because I'm also kind of petrified of Madonna. (laughs) And and for me, I would have no problem. I would say literally, if I had my chance with Madonna, I would say, I know that you will probably scoff at this, but I just need to tell you that causing a commotion is my all time favorite song. Thank you for making it. (laughs) And they can make with that what it is. And, and that's, and I don't care if you would sneer or whatever. (laughs) I would be, I would give my thank you and I would move on. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, that's all you can do. Um, but, but I have but I'm sure you guys have too, and I have too. I've been lucky. I've met my some of my idols. Mm-hmm. And some of them, you're right. They, they it's almost an impossible expectation sometimes that you put on people that you idolize or that you love because you may want them to be uh, your best friend, a mom, a super strong dad, sexy, whatever it is. And then you meet them sometimes and they could be having just like we do a bad day, a bad moment or whatever. And then you're like, oh. thankfully it's only happened a couple of times. I won't tell you the name. <laughs> I love, okay. I love the idea in this movie that he writes letters. He types these letters out on this typewriter that we get these extreme close-ups on several times in the movie. He writes these letters, sends them off in the mail and they're actually read and answered by, you know, by the assistant character played by Maureen Stapleton. And it's like how, I mean, today, you know, I guess the closest thing we would have to that is probably social media, just Instagram comments, you know, comments on Instagram, Mm -hmm. things like that. And maybe somebody will answer it back or, or like a tweet, you know, or retweet you things like that. But yeah, I think even, even 
the secretary answering him back, I think to me, you know, I know his level of, of fanaticism and mania is a little elevated. So to him, Maureen Stapleton's not good enough. I don't want the secretary to answer yeah. me. I want you to answer me, you know. But to yeah. me, if I got a response even from a, the secretary of who, whomever I wrote to, I'd be like, holy shit, this was in their house. You know, someone on their staff read it that has access to them. Right, right, right. Well, it's funny that you say that because on uh, Instagram, social media of today, some celebrities have actual people Mm -hmm. work their sites for them so they're not really them but there are also a lot of them uh like amy sedaris for instance she does her own page you when if she comments on something or johnny knoxville that's them Mm -hmm. so i know this for sure just because i these are two particular ones that i i've at least talked to but it's 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 always a thrill um a little bit of like ooh, you know they got a little bit of acknowledgement the problem with, you know, Michael Bean's character, there are many problems with his character, <laughs> but, um, you know, at the end of the day, he's a narcissist. Right, um, yeah. Now, he is, you know, he's having problems in the record store. Um, he, he he feels that his love to uh, Lauren Bacall, like, she will love me, whatever. And it's really interesting, again, we're jumping off a little bit, but another movie came out a year afterwards called The Seduction with Andrew Stevens and Morgan Fairchild. I don't know if you've heard of that mm-hmm. one. Okay, it's another mm-hmm. movie that'll make it gay. But uh, <laughs> um, it is basically a younger, sexier version of this in which Andrew Stevens is obsessed with Morgan Fairchild, who's a news reporter. Ah. It's basically the same plot of the fan. In fact, actually, you just reminded me that uh, a couple of years ago, my friend Ruben and I, we had a stalkathon and we watched the <laughs> fan and the seduction back to back one night. It was pretty funny. I love and that. I mean, I mean, who wouldn't be obsessed with Morgan Fairchild in 1982? Well, what's, I mean, really, funny, yeah. what's really funny in the seduction is that um, Andrew Stevens is so hot in it that you don't understand why Morgan Fairchild is. <laughs> Just get together Just, with him. Like, Keep this one as a kept man. It doesn't make any sense. That's too hey, funny. My, my <laughs> one more. This can be a quick story, but my one Morgan Fairchild story. We were at a con- we were at a convention, and I was getting Tippy Hedren's autograph, uh-huh. and she was having a conversation in the booth over with Morgan Fairchild. So I fully interrupted Tippy Hedren deep in conversation with Morgan Fairchild of like, excuse me, Miss Hedren, like, can you please <laughs> sign this headshot from the birds? That I just paid $45 that I just for. I paid like $20 for, and I was just talking to your assistant. So she fully like left a conversation with Morgan Fairchild and signed the photo with her like shaking arthritic hands. Uh, <laughs> I I, well, I, I kind of died. It's funny because obviously Tippi Hendren has a gay following and Morgan Fairchild has a gay following. Mm-hmm. So it's all within a, within, within a world where it makes sense. And actually in particular, Morgan Fairchild is very uh, pro LGBTQ. She always has been. And she was doing it at the time in the eighties especially fighting for AIDS rights uh, when not a lot of actresses or actors were sticking their heads out at that time. Right. So Morgan Fairchild, I will always, I don't think I could give her enough respect. I wish she had more notoriety now. I mean, she was really an eighties icon and yeah. she's not really doing any like, like, you know, leading role type of things. But, um, but that's hysterical. I've yet to meet Tippi Hedren. Is she still alive? 
I think she's she still is. alive, and she was I don't, lovely. And I don't think the Shambhala um, reserve is currently having guests there. So her wildlife reserve mm-hmm. out in the valley. Um, <laughs> so that brings up another point. You know, this movie takes place in this world of New York theater, and so many of the um, kind of like interstitial characters. You know, I'm looking up the one character that gets slashed in the YMCA pool. Mm-hmm. You that know, scene is insane. That scene is insane. First of all, <laughs> so by the by the way, unfortunately, again, we just mentioned AIDS a moment. That guy died of AIDS. That's in real life. that's where I was but, going. But we were, again, it's another it's another piece of the fan that makes the sum total of this film very gay. Mm-hmm. Some of it by intention, and some of it by unintention, and. Even having that actor in that role playing in that, and he ended up being gay, and unfortunately he ended up passing away because of AIDS. Mm-hmm. It's another, like, you can't put your finger on it, but this film is so gay. Yeah. Like, yeah. We just- were just talking about on a few episodes ago of just when you see random actors of movies of this time and you sort of go on a Google rabbit hole and then you find out that they died of AIDS. It's yeah. just, and it's always a very specific type or anytime, of actor. Anytime it's a movie from the early 80s and you see that they passed away in the 80s and they were young, you're just like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there's a guy from Friday the 13th Part 2. In the uh, wheelchair. Mark, who's yep. the guy who gets it in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind was blown, first of all, when I learned that he was gay. Yeah. I was like, Oh, and then and by the way, there are two gay men in that film, um, uh, two camp counselors. So the Friday the 13th Part Two is one of my favorites. Also, Friday the 13th Part Two came out one week or two weeks before yeah. the fan. Oh this wow! Time. Um, but uh, yes, he unfortunately passed away, and it was like, oh man, and for the same reasons. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that pool scene. So I just so you know again, I love the fact that your podcast is called "The Movies and Made Me Gay." Let me just tell you just one little story, and then we'll go back in. And I'm sorry for monopolizing too much time. No. When I saw this film, this was on – I lived in Vermont at the time, and I was a teenager, maybe 15 or something. And this was on late night out of a Canadian Montreal chase, uh, channel called Channel 12. And they would show their movies unedited. Ooh. And for me, we didn't have cable. This was like cable. So the fan came on and I saw it in the TV guide and I circled it and I didn't know anything about this movie. And I watched it like on a weeknight in the middle of the night. I had to, turn, I had to wake myself up at one o'clock in the morning to watch. <laughs> that's the only way, like that's just how you did it back then. And this movie played on and I liked the score and I could tell it was very dressed to kill. And then the rooftop scene came in. So for those of you who haven't watched the film, Sorry, we're going to spoil it here a little bit, but most people probably coming in listening to it has probably heard of the fan. Yeah. The scene in which a, uh, a guy is seduced on the roof by uh, Michael Bean for nefarious reasons. It doesn't end well for the gay man Oof. and at all. It's actually pretty grotesque. Um, but before that, the scene is so sexually charged uh, and there's a blowjob that's involved. Yeah. And as a teenager, oh my, oh my God, God, it was yeah. instantly turned on. And I was like, whoa, because I'd never seen anything like that. There was only one other movie called Making Love, which was oh, a right. drama from 1982, 
that showed up on the same Channel 12. So thank you, Channel 12 programming for whoever. <laughs> but though that had a kiss scene between Harry Hamlin and mm-hmm. Michael Onkin. Those two scenes from the fan and Mike uh, making love just talk about. Oh, me. yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm gay. Eye <laughs> opening. Yeah. And especially how that scene opens with Michael Bean walking into the gay bar that you yeah. just kind of instantly know, oh, this isn't this isn't like a regular bar. <laughs> this is this is one of those bars. Well, and also it's interesting that – so that scene actually happens in the book um, where, uh, you know, a, a gay man is set up to be, you know, killed and Michael Bean uses him as a, as a, uh, as a decoy mm-hmm. basically. But um, in the movie, it really speaks to – and Michael Bean says it in the interview as well – and that's where it's kind of said that Michael Bean's character in this film is a closet case. Right. Yeah. There is something going on here. And that's one of the things that I talked to Michael about outside of this interview was that one of the reasons where you're viewed as a closet case in this film is that you are so intent on being sexually charged with this old actress <laughs> just doesn't make any sense. You're a young, good-looking guy. Yeah. Not saying that good-looking guys can't go for older women. But in this case, she's pretty grandma-ish. Yeah. And it's pretty weird. And and then he and he thinks to go to a gay bar. He could have picked up, I don't know, he could have gone anywhere. Yeah. But he thought to go there. And in the rooftop scene, the guy does go down on it. Oh, yeah. Some. Yeah. It's not like... He just didn't almost get there. He gets there. Oh, totally. You're like, whoa. What's <laughs> and especially for a movie with a major American movie star that a studio was just like, sure, that keep it in the movie. It. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, like I said, it was just the all you had to do was see the hands up. You knew what the guy was doing. Yeah. But I had never anything like that before and i was like and i guarantee you when the fan showed again on that channel i would (laughs) stop watching this film but i not a film i could rent and right yeah or like that because well because of that scene in particular hard for me to justify that with like watching it with my dad you know (laughs) friends I I love that his idea is, okay, I'm going to fake a suicide. I'm going to find somebody about my, you know, build. uh, But the only way that I can fake the suicide to make it believable is we got to burn up the body, right? So not only do I slash my own throat, but I then cover myself in gasoline and light my dying body ablaze. (laughs) It's, it's I mean, you know, jokes aside... It's a pretty ugly scene. It is. Yeah. It's rough. It's a very, I'll say, homophobic scene yes. for its time. Um, and this was after Cruising came out. And Cruising had already been, you know, ripped up a new asshole, no pun intended, <laughs> of being, like, homophobic. And, 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 you know, of course, the gay community, myself included, as I have a Cruising oh, poster. I was going to say, you have a Cruising poster <laughs> behind you. Um, um, uh has embraced cruising, mm-hmm. but for that time, that kill scene and the fan just seemed a little like, aren't we past it? Right. And the um, movie called uh, the Sully Lloyd closet 
um, which talks about all gay and lesbian films from the very beginning all the way up in the and to now and mm-hmm. sort of the code ones and whatever. But they specifically brought out that film in a movie called um, Windows of two of, about lesbians of like, this is the uglier side of gay and lesbian. You could not, I, here's the thing. You could not have dressed to kill um, or cruising or I think you might be able to get away with that scene with the fan now, but I don't think you could have some of the other movies I just mentioned come out the way that they did. They'd be insensitive. Oh, they were back then. Yeah. Shout out to our cruising episode. Yeah. We, with Mike Descano. We cruising that, was with fun, Mike. that was a fun one to talk about. Um, oh, I'm sure it is. Cruising is just, you can never, I, I mean, God knows how many times I've seen that film and I've appreciated it more and more and more. But when I rented that one on video, when I was like a senior in high school, or whatever, I didn't quite get it. It just seemed a little ugly yeah. and wasn't my thing. And now over the years, talk about getting reevaluated. You look at this and you're like, wow, this is a gay slasher film. It's a time yeah. capsule of New York. Of the late seventies, total, total time capsule of sexual, like go for broke, yeah. which didn't you know really you know stopped right when AIDS came in. Mm-hmm. You had the director of The Exorcist, Al Pacino, like you just had a few things going on in that film. But you now the fan is no cruising. Um, <laughs> and it, wasn't, it wasn't as it wasn't a hit. Uh, oh, I wouldn't say cruising was a hit, but cruising made a lot more money than the fan, right? And, and dressed to kill for for a couple of reasons um so it's yeah. probably not the intention of the line but i did think it was very interesting when um lauren bacall tells i don't know if she's telling james garner when she's just very upset and she said i've got a fruitcake fan obsessed mm-hmm. with me and she doesn't <laughs> mean fruit. best line yeah <laughs> and i mean she doesn't mean that he's like a fruit like he's fruity but just now when you hear it, you're just like well yeah <laughs> well like i said the author of the film was gay mm-hmm. the producer of this film was gay um you know I, I you know you probably go behind the scenes of you know some of the crew not not saying so much of the cast because we know that the cast wasn't right but like there was all this like circulating circulating behind the scenes kind of stuff where I feel like at one point is it intentional, not intentional, unintentional? It's yeah. hard to tell which which makes it a fascinating film to me. Mm-hmm. Um of like where where did it all go wrong and happen? And um you know I was surprised, I've got to be honest, when we did the Blu-ray and we got the director and we got the editor, uh Michael Bean was a surprise. I didn't know if he was going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And had more budget i would have loved to have gone to the composer and a few other people just go whatever but we always have to keep things in it i was surprised that they were able to talk about the fan and candidly and that paramount who we sub-licensed the film from didn't object to our commentary and our extras that in itself was a hurdle that i didn't know if we were going to get past because you know it's not it lauren isn't mentioned so flattering In these interviews. I think that there's some powerful gay men at Paramount that sort of <laughs> gave you the backdoor entrance with that one. Uh, no pun intended. No pun intended. Um, some of the campier elements in this scene for me revolve around Lauren's singing. Oh my God. Um, we have to talk about this fucking musical. <laughs> I have so many questions about what the story is of, of this n- musical. Never say never. But that said... 
I would pay $100 to see this at, like, the Pantages this week. I, I... I've shown this film over the years to several people, virgin viewers. Mm-hmm. Of the thing. And when we get into the music territories, they're flabbergasted because they just don't understand. There's this guy running around in cabaret doing in Paris, like what, <laughs> what's going on. There's a couple of women dancing that she's a remarkable woman. She's also lying in bed. That you know, hot love baby. Ba- Nothing <laughs> seems to make any sense in this music. Has Lauren just had a, a like a kinky three way with all of these men? I don't know. Yeah, it it and that number comes out of nowhere. It just doesn't make any sense. I also love in the earlier rehearsal scenes when she's doing the choreography. Love the rehearsal scenes. You know, she's getting the choreography down, and there's maybe one line that's sung, and you know, Lauren Bacall is talk singing you know she's henry higgins talk singing the entire time and even during the rehearsal it's only one line but it's still you can still kind of hear that it was looped that she that she probably pre-recorded it and mm-hmm. then lip-synced it in the in in the shot I'm like she's talk singing why can't she just do that on set? <laughs> but it's that lauren bacall delivery that's just uh oh. It's the voice and the and the the diction and all of that. That um, look on Lauren Bacall's face right before she performs that number in rehearsal of that. All right, are you ready? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack in the musical stuff. I think that the film heart uh, the song "Hearts Not uh, Not Diamond" got nominated for a Razzie as it should have <laughs> um, because. Not- you know, it's actually probably not a bad song, but the way that she sings it with this, you know, sitting on a podium, you know, sitting on the feet in front of the audience, smoking a cigarette, and her voice just does not live up to it. So, like, she just should not have been a, a solo singer in that moment. Hearts and diamonds start running through my mind. Diamonds seem to cling to me Hearts get left behind I always chased those diamonds Hoping I would shine Hearts were not my strongest suit So you were never mine And I'm wondering about the the Broadway that she was doing at the time, probably not musicals, I would imagine. No, she was. That's oh. the whole thing. She oh. was doing something called applause, and she was, you know, she was doing the the Broadway stuff. She was, she, she was singing, but I don't know. It just <laughs> <laughs> there, there's something about maybe, and this happens all the time when you see a musical and you go to Broadway or you go to a play. There's a different energy that comes out there. Right. It's, very hard to translate that sometimes to actual film. And in this case, Lauren Bacall probably did much better in person in Broadway, sure. taking her talent and going to, to taking this to film. You know, it's funny. The whole musical of the fam reminds me of the opening of death becomes her. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Completely. Just <laughs> the sweet, Sweet charity of youth, sweet bird of youth, sweet bird of youth. Yeah, songbird. Oh, yeah. It's so. It, it, every time I see the opening of Death Becomes Her, I'm like, I wonder if they watched the fan, like because it's just so 
Lauren McCall is very Madeline. Madeline uh, Ashton. <laughs> Madeline Ashton, you know. Absolutely. Uh, just sitting on the bed, like, ab- I, I thought the exact same thing when I, when I was watching it. Um. Yeah, that that stuff is iconic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, the funny thing is Michael Bean, and he says it a little bit in the interview, but afterwards he would be like, "Hots and diamond." He told me that <laughs> he told me that his agent at the time, I wish I remembered his name, but he was also gay. Um, for years afterwards, would just cackle and howl about hearts and diamonds with Michael Bean. Lots of hearts. And <laughs> thought that that was just such a ridiculous scene in the film and, and i can only imagine it you know it's too bad it's it, going back to michael beam you know when this movie came out and it didn't do very well you know mm-hmm. his agent was kind of honest with him and said you know this isn't gonna do what it's gonna do but he is probably the most him and probably Maureen Stapleton, as far as the actors are concerned, they're the ones who hit their beats yeah. probably the best. Mm-hmm. He's really good in it. From it scathed, whereas Lauren Bacall, God love you wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, James Gardner completely phoning it in. You know, they the, this was really kind of like a sort of a throwaway for them. But Michael Dean Bean does a really good job. And what did not make the Blu-ray, which I was very upset about when I learned afterwards because we interviewed it, is that James Cameron saw the fan and oh, wow. kept Michael Bean in the Terminator because he thought he had an intensity and a something that was there that he saw in the fan. Wow. I love that. I, I know. I That's why I was upset when it didn't make it on the Blu-ray. I was like, I t- went to my editors. I was like, um, <laughs> they're cutting this and it was on there. Why'd you take it off? Oh, I don't know. I happened. I'm like, Okay, oh well, wow! That's pretty good. And pretty good Michael Beans yeah. had a working relationship with Jim Cameron that's lasted decades. Yeah, too. Well, He's very loyal to his actors. That, that Michael, you know, told me like, you know, I could pick up the phone and talk to James at any time, and he really could. Um, but you know, you think of Michael Beans' career in Tombstone and The Abyss mm-hmm. and Aliens and Terminator and all these iconic films. You know, I mean. And he's, you know, he's also enjoyed the party life, uh, Mr. B, <laughs> um, for some time, whenever. But again, I'm so, I'm still so in awe that I was able to have not one, but two conversations about the fan with him. All right, this is something I've never told anybody. So when I met Michael Bean the first time, it was when we went to his place to interview him for a film he did called The Seventh Sign. With Demi Moore. I, I remember The Seventh Sign. I yes, loved that like movie. End of the World type yep. of stuff. And, and she, he plays her, uh, Demi Moore's husband in it. And he agreed to do an interview. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm making sure that I'm going to see Michael Bean. And I'm <laughs> going to try to bring in the fan and see what he, how he reacts. Love it. Um, that, and at that time, we didn't have the fan. So we went in and went to his place and whatever. And then I said, you know, I have to let you know, I'm the marketing manager, blah, 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 blah. I don't normally come to these things, but I'm a huge fan of the film that you did called The Fan. And he looked at me and he said, can I ask you a question? <laughs> can I, I ask you a personal question? question. <laughs> exactly. And I said, yes, 
He said, are you gay? And I said, <laughs> absolutely. And he just laughed. And from there on, totally relaxed, joked with me, laughed with me. And probably one of the best moments was me sitting outside um, with him, like on his picnic table, and just going through all of the areas of the fan that make this film a cult classic uh, with gay men. Yeah. And he was laughing and joking. He said something that he didn't say on camera. He said that he had a lot of respect for the gay community because we fight when things are, we, we don't just, we, 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 when we're tired of being bullied, Mm -hmm. being pushed upon, we actually fight back. And he said he has a lot of respect for that. So anybody who's listening to that, just know that, you know, I wouldn't say that Michael Bean would, you know, be at your local gay pride parade, (laughs) but he had an understanding and, um, and he's also been in the business. How could you not be in the business for all those years and not have uh, gay hairdressers or crew? I'm sorry, not to stereotype, but makeup and stuff and casting agents and directors and all sorts of people. So, absolutely, that's really that's really cool. That's great to hear too. Because and yeah. what a wild experience for him because he had just done TV, some small movies, and I mean he's from like probably like rural Texas or something. I'm not sure where he's from. It was from uh, I think it was either oh god I want to say Arizona, um, yeah, maybe, somewhere in the southwest, some place small, um, and. You know, he got plucked. Yes, he lands this lead opposite Lauren Bacall. And just how intimidating that would have been. He talks about on the Blu-ray first meeting her and bringing her flowers. And she was having a conversation, probably smoking with James Garner. And she just walks over, takes the flowers, gives them to an assistant and just walks away. And doesn't even say anything to him. To me, I was was surprised that Paramount allowed us to keep that in. Yeah. Uh, but, I love that know, shit, though. Laura McCall is not, you know, with us anymore, and uh, and I can see that happening, and I'm sure that that was completely offensive. But as he said in the interview, he was in his early 20s; he didn't know, yeah, and he was this seasoned person, and you know, probably liked it, but yeah, not a not a good way of of you know keeping a keeping your uh like a new actor like you know like who's all excited mm-hmm. and whatever and then you get that i mean that's a crush yeah, yeah. a crushing blow for sure yeah um kind of going back to a little bit of his character and kind of being a closet case i love his scenes in the record store with dana delaney oh yes just how he just hates this Bit. Like he's just like get, get the hell out of this here. This queen like, is over it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and she's cute. She's like really cute. She's dressed all hip. She's like kind of punk, you know. And she likes him. She comes yeah. up and she's super friendly. She's just you know she's just a coworker that she's you know she's not being a bitch to him. She's not like putting him down or rejecting him. It's not that thing of he's been emasculated by other women or you know anything like that. He just doesn't like her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't like her. And there's another scene, of course, when his sister mm-hmm. comes to the door 
And, you know, she's like, you know, basically, you know, you're living in a fantasy world. But for a lot of gay men, that's another scene that strikes home because there's an ostracization. Oh, God, I can't say this today. <laughs> there's a removal from the family mm-hmm. that a lot of yeah. men go through. Like, let me live in my own space. You don't understand me. Um, you know, um, I'm being quiet because of whatever. There's, again, another layer there. Um, yeah, his interaction with women in the film, not so good. Yeah. Um, the, the maid, um, Maureen Stapleton, the other maid who gets slashed in the bedroom, mm-hmm. the, uh, even the other throwaway stagehand woman uh, at the end of the film who he gets rid of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the the end of the movie just goes off the rails. The, you know, the ticket taker guy and like the, the cleaning lady in the theater, like they didn't do anything. That's just, you know, that's just crazy. It was at that point. Um, so what I've been told is that the ending was definitely reshot after Dress to Kill and Friday the 13th were big hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Stigwood, um, big producer, Grease, you know, um, was like, okay, we need to dress to kill this all up. Like, we, we need more slashing, we need whatever. Apparently, so in the beginning of the film where the um, fan takes the pen away from Lauren Bacall and, and Michael Bean takes it. Mm-hmm. Originally, the ending of the film is that Lauren Bacall would have stabbed him with a pen, which would have... I thought it was going to go that direction when I saw yeah. the pen was so heavily featured. Yes, and James Gardner also comes in at the end of the film on the original ending and saves the day or something like that or whatever. Hmm. There's a few things that are going on, but in the ending that is now the permanent ending, you know, there's a razor, you know, there, a knife. A knife, you know, yeah knife not even a razor at this point and you know gory blood gushing out of the neck and all (laughs) sorts of stuff and but yes two other innocent people just get bit biting the dust pretty quickly it's um again that's why it's this weird slasher film there are slasher fans that will uh begrudgingly put this film into the slasher camp because it doesn't fit the friday the 13th and the halloween thing but it is a slasher film because many people are slashed into it, but it isn't a typical one. It's also not your typical psychological thriller. It's, it's again, it's yeah. just why I love this film so much because it, it brings up the, it, I'm always just kind of sitting there going like the intentions were good because nobody makes a movie with the intention of making it bad. Sure. There can be some, right. you know, horror comedies out there or whatever. Where people are like, well, we're going to make it so bad it's good. You can't really do that. Everybody goes in wanting to make a good movie. So a lot of budget and time and effort and energy went into the fan. And then. <laughs> yeah, there was yeah. a lot of talent involved in this movie. Like you mentioned, the producer, um, the the cinematographer, too. I mean, yep. Dick Bush has shot a lot of big movies. Jaws. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, like. <laughs> You know, um, uh, even just the the writer of Hearts and uh, Diamonds. I gotta look at my poster. Um, Hamlish and oh, I should Tim Rice, man. And Tim Rice was the lyricist for The Lion King, I think. Yep, uh, Marvin Hamlish, uh, the music. Uh, actually, I even found out 
that the executive producer, which is Kevin McCormick, I believe somebody told me either off record, maybe it's on record that he had a relationship with Robert Stigwood. So again, men behind the scenes, you know, that were gay, that were not publicly out, um, you know, uh, playing a role in this film. Yeah. I think, you know, Michael Bean, obviously, but I think, like, for me, Maureen Stapleton is really, like, a shining star in this This was the year that she she won her Oscar, too. This is the year that Reds came out. Yep. Yeah, she doesn't get enough credit in this film, meaning that she's pretty... uh, Her scene, again, it is a campy scene where she's telling off Lauren Bacall, and she's (laughs) like... What is this bliss shit? You know, I'm I'm a letter writing mop, you know, floor mop, whatever. She goes into this thing and you're fascinated by her at that moment. You don't even know your fans. I'm the one that has to put up with them. He's the one that's gone too far. He wants to be your lover, for Christ's sake. What was I supposed to do? Give him an appointment? You were supposed to handle it. Firmly, but nicely. That's your job. Did it ever occur to you that my job isn't exactly heaven. Neither is mine. Whoever told you that life was supposed to be uninterrupted bliss? What is this bliss shit? I, I, I'm a secret service escort, a butler, nurse, letter writing machine, floor mop. I got a phone growing out of one ear and a big fake smile on my face. Eight, ten, twelve hours a day. Hello. And, you know, she plays her character really well. So the time where she's attacked in the subway, you actually feel it. Oh, it's, yes. The, it's a, it's a um, again, a brutal scene because um, she's a likable character. And, and you, but you also know that there's unavoidable that she was, you know, going to be, you know, that she was going to cross paths with the fan. Mm-hmm. But um, it's really a kind of a scene. But that subway scene is, again... Right out of Dress to Kill. I, yeah. I think that I said that out loud when we were watching it. The first time that we had watched it last night, I think I, I think I actually just said Dress to Kill out loud <laughs> when it was that sort of that tracking shot of him catching up to her in yep. the subway. Yeah. Yeah, that music is very Jaws. Um, yes. Dun, 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 dun. It's almost, again, comical, but it's not. But I remember, again, watching it for the first time when I was a kid, and I was terrified for her. I was yeah. like, oh, my God. He's a psychopath. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Another uh, thing that we had to, I had to stop and go back when it's early on in the movie and it's established that it's Lauren Bacall's character's birthday. Oh, oh, her age. So much is made of like, you're 49, but oh no, 47, 45. And it's like, wait, what? How old is she supposed to be? And then yeah. I'm assuming it was supposed to be her 50th birthday because later on she says, I'm 50 years old and I'm opening a show on Broadway. And I looked up that uh, Lauren Bacall was 57 when she made this of movie. Of course I think. she was. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wink. There's no way that she was going to be 49. No. That's so ridiculous. But again, probably part of the script. I mean, again, mm-hmm. you, you never know what vanity or an ego i mean the the thing that always fascinates me about movies and you know i've been in the business for a while and i've seen a lot of behind the scenes shenanigans is people don't realize sometimes of those kind of like egos and personality things like that go into every process and um stars like lauren bacall you know she would have a fit 
Um, you know, she did not like that the original director was replaced. I think if you saw the, I don't know if you saw the interview, but she kept calling, uh, the director, Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Cause he was a commercial director and she took that kind of personal that I'm yeah. a huge movie star and I'm being directed by someone that has that shot Dr. Pe- Dr. Pepper commercials. <laughs> and also just Lauren McCall has been famous since she was like. I mean, how old was she when she was discovered? 17, yeah. 18 years old. So she's been in the spotlight for almost her entire life. Yeah. Yeah. She just, you know, again, but at the same token, too, if if Lauren Bacall wasn't her, I'm going to give her this credit, and she didn't behave the way that she did, and Michael Bean and the director and the editor didn't have the stories that they had, and she wasn't Laura Bacall. We might not be talking about this. It movie. wouldn't be as good. True. You know what I mean? Like on some levels, it's kind of like, um, well, it's kind of like when um, we talk about Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest. It's like, it's not just that she did a role that was so over the top. It's also her real life reputation that adds fuel to the fire and the reputation of Mommy Dearest. Which, by the way, I'll, you mentioned it in the early part of the call. I love the fact that there was a time in 1981 where Paramount's PR team was working yeah, on both pretty close and Mommy Dearest. <laughs> both 81. They, they 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 had to they had to have crossover there. They were oh, also yeah. working on Friday the 13th part 2 and My Bloody Valentine, <laughs> but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But, um, but certainly some campiness going it's on. It's just kind of funny that like we just talked last week with Jackson about Mommy Dearest, and it wasn't even intended that we would follow it up with the fan, but it just kind of worked out. Yeah. Again, I'm glad that the fan – you know, it's funny. Um, one of you said that it, this is a – I mean, it's a cult following and it's a, and it's a niche cult following. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how much more it'll ever break out other than just, you know, but you guys didn't know about it until yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, and so that's a good thing. That means it'll continue sort of a little bit of its path. It'll never be a mommy dearest or, right. or a Valley of the Dolls or a showgirls, a real bonafide, huge baby Jane cl- gay classic. But if you go down a little bit more, I think that this film just will have its continued legs. I was just thrilled to be able to put this out on Blu-ray and in a sense preserve it. Um, because, yes, you can rent it on streaming, but it doesn't have the extras, doesn't have the mm-hmm. content. And it looks better on Blu-ray, of course. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just never get tired of this film. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does look better on Blu-ray. Um, that kind of reminded me of um you know we we talk about this a lot on on the podcast watching high definition movies from you know the 70s and the 80s sometimes things show up that didn't quite you know weren't intended to show up you can really read at the end of this movie the makeup on michael bean's uh jab to the head (laughs) the uh the slight when when she whips him and there's the scar like that's right there it's like Looks like you could peel it away. <laughs> yeah, that was never meant for HD. Maureen no, it, Maureen Stapleton's scars too from her from her slashing are yeah, a little crazy, but Maureen Stapleton <laughs> the all hell in the in the hospital looking like a like Oh man. It's so embarrassing. The hospital scenes are pretty rough. <laughs> you know who's also, by the way, who we never I didn't mention this much on the Blu-ray, and maybe we mentioned a little bit on the commentary. 
But when I watched it again recently, because I have watched it since we put it out on Blu-ray mm-hmm. a couple times, because I just go there. Yeah. Hector, Hector Elizondo is, uh, yeah. again, good, plays his role, doesn't overshadow, plays it understated, plays that same character that he played in Pretty Woman. Yep. They, they just <laughs> that same kind of nice, calming basically uh what is it the straight man like the just mm-hmm. like he doesn't have to bring it up because the other actors are already up here and also michael bean going back to him i'm just thinking about the performances michael bean doesn't really have to act until the final end of the film all of his scenes are face um, a couple of that one scene in the record store, mm-hmm. but it is just being upset or swimming <laughs> in a pool, killing somebody or whatever, or typing letters and it's voiceovers. Yeah. It really doesn't have to do much speaking in the film. It's a lot kind of stuff. So I give him That's a lot true. of credit. He's just using most of his face yeah. you know, um, throughout the whole film registering. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. I didn't think about that, but there is, it is a lot of voiceover. Um, I love also you mentioned Hector Elizondo, but I, I also do want to give a shout out to Anna Marie Horsford from Amen. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so it's funny because she's in it before Amen was a hit right, show on yeah. NBC on Saturday nights, which I do you remember that block from the eighties? Uh, Amen on Saturday. Was it, was it with Golden Girls? Golden Girls, that's one. Yeah. Um, uh, Golden Girls, you- Amen. Um, well, at some point... There was the uh, the Richard Mulligan spinoff, Empty Nest. Uh-huh. We don't like to talk about Empty Nest. Chris, well, Christy McNichol. <laughs> I'll, I'll give Christy McNichol and uh, and I I, I, did, I never liked Empty Nest and so Marty from a, Greece. But there were two other shows before Empty Nest or that came on. Do you remember them? And the Golden Girls and Amen. Let's see. Gosh, I can't. I can't. I'll fill you. I can't think of it. Sure, that tracks. They moved to Saturdays at some point. Okay. And 227. Oh, yeah. Yeah, obviously. 227 would be the same night as Amen. So it's so funny we mentioned this because I literally was just talking about this with a friend of mine a couple of other days uh, uh, ago, is that as teenagers in the 80s, if you didn't have cable and you were bored on a Saturday night, that's what you watched was were those pockets of shows. That's and a block. You, and you went to Saturday Night Live. That is yeah. a that is a good block of like lady comedy. That's right there. your entire evening right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that is what you did. You just did because you were bored. You didn't have anything else to watch. And CBS and ABC on Saturdays just it wasn't cutting. No, no. I mean, that is must see TV. That I is, mean, oh my god. I think it's wild that just the idea of a successful sitcom a Saturday Night Block. Like, yeah. that's so inconceivable what? now that you can't even – I don't even know what's on ABC at, like, 7 o'clock now It just on a Saturday. Like said, it just – it sort of kind of worked, and it's amazing that, again, Golden Girls and 227 and The Facts of Life have gay followings. Mm-hmm. Amen, not so much. No, but, yeah. But the other sure. – uh, and Empty Nest does have the Christy McNichol factor, <laughs> <laughs> even even though I didn't like that show. But yeah. uh, yes, um, but she's in it and she's a cop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but, you know, the other thing, too, is I love, again, all of the gay extra dancers and the, yeah. and the lead one kind of has a Sandy Duncan vibe <laughs> who is like, yes. like, 
showing all the showing the, all the moves, and he's the one that's you know in Paris. And whatever <laughs> like that. I'm, like, I'm like, okay, you couldn't have gotten a more Nellier. Oh. And those in those bold shots of those dancers in that rehearsal. Yeah, I mean, it's just so. Again, I can imagine New York Broadway like that's just kind of how it was. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Fame. Uh, yeah, sure. Fame, Fame had came out like right before that. Another New York film, gritty but not as well. Now there's some pretty bad, mo- uh, dangerous. Yeah, in, yeah. In fame as well. Um, Treasure Lee Coco. Uh, oh yes, poor Coco, <laughs> poor Coco. In yeah, yeah. That as a, as a kid watching anything like that fascinated me when there was, you know, uh, a show production dance and you would see male dancers, you know, in a rehearsal situation to me, I was just like, Oh my goodness. This is what is going on. Watch it. We, we talk a lot about, um, outrageous fortune on, oh, yes. on this, on this show, the, the dance rehearsal scenes, that yeah. open up outrageous fortune. She, you know, yeah. she's a ballet dancer and there's like all these men and, and he, in that movie, one of them is, one of them is gay. And one she, of them's gay. She and calls is, it out. Is going straight for method. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, so any anytime as a kid we got, I got to see like male dancers, ballerinas like in, you know, rehearsal outfits, I was just like, all right, this movie's for uh, me. Well, for for us it was um <laughs> solid gold. Oh yes. Uh, I mean, any every time the gate the male dancers came on, I think even my brothers and I would all go gay. <laughs> like I mean, cuz I was just so obvious. Um, yeah. But you know, the 80s, you know, it's interesting. The 80s produced so many gay things i'm talking <laughs> madonna i'm talking mommy dearest i'm talking boy george i'm talking about the music i'm talking about fashion I'm talking yeah. about dynasty. i'm talking about so many things and yet it was also such a homophobic decade yeah yeah interesting and scenes like the fan and cruising and some of that kind of stuff reflected it but then but it's interesting after cruising address to kill and whatever there was this long spell of basically invisibility of gay men in any movies you didn't have like you had some supporting characters in big business um or you know uh uh throw away characters but a lot of it was that kind of like you know bronson pinchot (laughs) and beverly hills cops super over the top stuff and and it was not it just was a – I mean I'm so glad that things have changed for us for the better. I actually think now you could have a, a gay slasher film or you could have gay villains and it would not be a big deal. In fact, we have seen yeah. them. Right. Um, we have seen them. But uh, back then it was just a different time. And I'll, I've asked myself this. I was a teenager – High school, you know, I wasn't an out gay man at the time in Mm -hmm. the 80s. Had I lived in New York, would I have protested something like cruising? Uh, Yeah, uh, probably. Absolutely. If I was an out gay man and I was looking for, um, you know, equal rights and whatever like that, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'd be offended. I just think it's ironic that the fan and cruising and Dress to Kill in particular are films that are now really sort of like gay men are like, well, these were our films. So. We've, we've <laughs> taken them back. Like, like, like don't appropriate them. Other people like this, this is, this is, this is our history. This yeah. is our stuff. And it is. And, and as ugly as some of the moments are in those films, 
Well, they did sort of braise conversation. Same thing with Basic Instinct. Um, yeah. You know, there was a lot of stuff in that in the early 90s. And uh, so, you know, the fan is small in comparison, but we're still talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that we kind of uh, addressed the the situation with the character on the rooftop and, you know, the brutality of that because mm-hmm. – yeah. On the one hand, it, it is something that, you know, if he is, you know, uh, a closeted gay character or something like that, but what he does do to him is rough, you know? And, um, okay. yeah, I, w- I was just thinking as we're, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm just like, oh my God, like, that's going to have some blowback. Like, people are going to yeah. have feelings about this. That couldn't yeah. be done today. And also but. just kind of the weird plot holes of this movie, which we can forgive now just because sure. it's a it's a crazy movie of the plot holes of that. He's just getting away with all of this. Like he's <laughs> just like openly murdering people in the pool at the YMCA or yeah. just sneaking <laughs> into Lauren Bacall's house and he just gets away with it. Yeah, yeah. The pool scene is very funny because it's kind of like, well, it's a pretty vicious scene. And but he just swims away, and yeah. no one says like stop. What like, happened? Yeah, Whatever. I mean for the middle away. of the day at the YMCA, this place is like yeah. lit. Again, the YMCA, another unintended, yeah, you know, gay, gay hallmark. Different. Like it was pretty, pretty like you know, it's just the whole thing. And just so. like another moment, I think that he's on the phone with Lauren Bacall, and then there's this there. There's just this album of Donna Summer, Donna Summer, oh, yeah. Summer in the back. <laughs> yes, he's he's actually he's in the record store about to do his speech to the boss. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. he's back. like psyching himself out like Travis Bickle style. Yeah, and then there's another scene where he's sitting in the park after being rejected, and he's like, "Do you think that your secretary might have lesbian tendencies?" Again, <laughs> another example of just like, okay, how many gay themes? Yeah. <laughs> Kind of like um, a movie that was also set in New York, which was The Village People's Ridiculous Can't Stop uh, the Music, which yep. came out a year before. Oh, we'll it's, get to that movie eventually. Well, we did put it out on Blu-ray and did it ju- justice. Love and I did it. produce that one. Uh, I, I have to say that because I love the fact that I have in my canon some of these like, <laughs> gay films that are like, yes, I put them out. Um, but Can't Stop the Music is another film where it's like so obvious gay throughout the whole movie and yet no one says the word gay yep like and that's where the fan plays into that role it's kind of like yes it's meant for mainstream but not really it's the, all the codes are there all the sensibilities are right. there and that's why we're talking about it on a podcast of like movies that made me gay <laughs> and i gotta be honest when i announced it that title was coming through a batch of so every year at Scream Factory, usually announce a whole bunch of titles at Comic-Con and get everybody really excited about them. And the fan was one of 22 films. Every time I saw someone got really excited about the fan, I kind of looked at their profile like, <laughs> Called it. That checks out. <laughs> for the team. That's funny. That's awesome. I mean, I'm sure that there's weirdo straight fans that are into this movie. Of course there are. Well, they're <laughs> Michael Bean fans. Yeah. Out there. And there are certainly fans of slasher films that just are completists and they want all slasher films. Sure. And I get it. And there's probably – well, if they're fans of Lauren Bacall and they're men, they're probably gay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's going to throw out there. But I, I would say that the percentage is probably 90% to 10. Yeah. You know, maybe 80-20. <laughs> yeah. 
that's being generous. Yeah, that's not, that sounds about right. I mean, to be fair, a straight friend of ours, when I put this on my Instagram story from the letterbox um, cover, he did reply to my story and just said, oh, wow, that's really hard to get a hold of. Hmm. So he was aware of it. So he was aware of, he was aware of it. Well, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, we're we're so glad that it's available now, you know, on Blu-ray and I mean we're lucky enough to have a local store, like brick and mortar store that we can go to and, and rent Video, it. At, Video Tech know. in South Pasadena. Yeah. Oh, so, that's nice. Have so you ever been to Video Tech in South Pasadena? Yeah. Is that where you rented it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever been there? Because no, I know that I you're not. somewhat local. Oh, yeah. You should have an afternoon and go to Videotech in South Pasadena, and you can go walk by the Michael Myers house. Oh, well, <laughs> you can go see Andy's house from f- from Pretty in Pink. It's just down the street. Mama's family's house is down there, too. Oh, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. I have a picture in front of it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think we're in this age now where people um, – I said it in last week's episode, if it's if it's not streaming on Netflix, you know, or, or Prime, people are just like, well, then I'm not going to watch it. But yeah, you know, well, I mean, again, the fan is available to rent. You, you yeah. can, you know, go on iTunes or go on Amazon, but you got to pay money for it. Um, I would argue that, like, you know, if you're a fan of this film. I think we did it right. Uh, the commentary, as mm-hmm. you listen to the the best. <clears throat> I will say that the commentary is the only commentary I will ever do. Um, and I, <laughs> and people are like, why we thought it was a blast. You, you would probably be fun on some other ones. I'm like, I only wanted to do it on the fan. I could speak to that film. I also knew that the guys that I was with on that commentary, David Duval and David Dakota were established gay men who had their own followings and who had their own respect and between the three of us all being fans of that film, we turned it into, as you listen to bits of it, sort of a rocky, not a rocky horror, <laughs> but a bit of a, we camped it up. Yeah. We, we took mm-hmm. the seriousness out of the interviews with the cast and crew, and then we applied that, okay, well, here's the real deal. Yeah. You know, like, here's all the information, but let's sing these bad songs and let's <laughs> laugh at all the camp and let's also, you know look at how hot Michael Bean is when he's taking his shirt off. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm glad that I'm glad that that's there permanently. Yeah. Um, And that's what we're here for. We, we love that. We're always here for, for, for camping it up. When I saw that it was David Dakota and it was that, I was just like, cause we're only familiar with him from his, uh, is it, is it the 1313 movies? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have a little bit of, little bit of, a lot of bit of uh, yeah. homoerotic uh, kind of stuff. <laughs> Just a little. And he knew what he was doing. But when I met him years ago through David DelVal and we all got talking about the fan, it was like, okay, well, that's great. But these are also the same kind of guys that like Eyes of Laura Mars mm-hmm. and The Lonely Lady and, you know, these kind of, you know, The Bitch with Joan Collins. Ah, uh, The Bitch. The Bitch. There's, 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 <laughs> certain, certain Love that one. Of, there's certain movies from that time period that were like, again, either coded or outright gay or mm-hmm. whatever. And um, they were just the – they were great. And you could tell that we were all having a good time with this film. Yeah. And, and um, I've gotten some really good – Mike Toscano is a good example of that. Hence, that's why I'm on this interview, mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, uh, people were having a blast with the commentary. And that's great. you know. But I 
did not expect to be talking about it years later because kind of when those things when when those things are done, I promote it and then I'm like moving on because sure. uh, uh, just because. I don't like being one of those people who be like, oh, look what I did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. <laughs> I've told myself I do not, I never want to be a baby Jane at the end of the day. <laughs> too, many, too many people who do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about this a little bit on the uh, Our Mommy Dearest episode, and you brought up the idea of, or that Michael Bean said that something that he admires about the gay community is how we're ready to stand up for, you know, rights and things like that but what we brought up in the mommy dearest episode is that movie is going to be is 40 years old this year Mm -hmm. and a newer generation of queer people may not be as familiar with it and how important is it for us to say hey you need to learn about these things you need to be familiar with these you know these tropes and these um pieces of art that are just part of our uh, combined identity and yep. I'm seeing also that younger people aren't well maybe in the past year we've kind of gotten off of our collective asses and said okay we do need to stand up again and right. and and be as active and and as militant as as we need to be and I think it took 2020 to bring the younger yeah. generation of queer people to say okay you know, maybe we are being kind of not forgotten about, but complacent, mm-hmm. you know, and are just like, well, everything's fine. Homophobia doesn't exist anymore. You know, we've, we're we on TV and in movies. So let's just, you know, not. Yeah, it's, it's 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 not. And, yeah. you know, I mean, again, these films that we talk about, the older ones in particular, they are. Uh, John Waters films are a great example. They're a rite of passage yes. that you sort of kind of need to, like, if you really want to understand, like, gay identity, gay culture, gay pop culture, uh, you know, you better know who Alexis Carrington is on Dynasty. You yeah. better know who you better know who RuPaul is. You don't you don't have to watch them. You don't have to even like them, but at least know of them because these people, characters, Elvira, mm-hmm. whomever. These are um, icons that uh, have been important to our formative growing uh, coming out experiences. And um, and so these films, like, again, when I came out in the early 90s, late 80s, you know, I didn't know about um, the I didn't know about John Waters films. I didn't know about uh, that Wizard of Oz was so beloved by gay men. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. like. I only heard glimpses of Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland, which, by the way, I'm not really into those ladies myself yeah. personally, but I am into Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. So that's another story. But so, <laughs> but, the, but there are people pick and choose and they have your different icons and mm-hmm. lady. I, you know, Britney Spears is probably a great example. Do you know how many gay fans she has? My yeah. God. She's now that generation of like like there are gay men that will just be like don't you ever say anything on the about on the free Britney yeah. which is I mean I'm kind of of that same age but it's never something that I've really related to but I can respect it though yeah mm-hmm. I mean I I'm just glad that podcasts like yourself um, are available. I love that social media, God, there's a lot of things to say about social media that are not so good. But the good thing about social media is that 
when I was growing up in the 80s and even coming out in the 90s, I didn't have any sort of forum like this before. It was mm-hmm. the clubs and the bars, and he didn't have any sort of place to see like Instagram where you could see a whole bunch of people being really cool, having fun, laughing, poking fun at themselves and having a sense of like, oh, this is these are like minded people. I mean, it's good for that. Um, God knows um, what movies like Mommy Dearest and The Fan would have been like had social media existed. Yeah, right. Right. But I mean, but from what I was told, Mommy Dearest, God, when it came out, it's such a camp following that people were like starting to dress up in costume immediately um, in the cities and that mm-hmm. um, Joan Croft, uh, sorry, uh, Faye, Faye Dunaway hissed when <laughs> Paramount's marketing department re-put out n- newspaper ads that said, Mommy Dearest, no wire hangers, the biggest mother of them all and had a little wire hanger dangling from the tee. <laughs> and I think that's hysterical that they did that. Because they clearly were trying to go for an Oscar campaign before it, and they realized, yeah. oh, gee, everyone's laughing at this movie. Let's just <laughs> let's let's have fun with it. Yeah, Faye Dunaway, boy, she's boy that Faye Dunaway. I mean, I, you know what? I often think of God. What it, what would it have been like the fan? Let's go back to that. What would the fan have been like had Elizabeth Taylor taken? Sure. This yeah. Or Anne Bancroft. I mean, Anne Bancroft, I could probably see her being similar to um, uh, Lauren Bacall just mm-hmm. because they have a similar look. But the dynamic of Elizabeth Taylor in this role, oh my God. Late 70s Liz, too. <laughs> or like, or, or late 70s, early 80s Liz, too. Yeah. It, it just would have been something else. I can't even imagine. Which um, I don't even know what was Liz Taylor doing in the early 80s in terms of movies, too. She, what, she, she did a movie called yeah. The Mirror Cracked, but it was like an ensemble piece with some other people. But she really wasn't doing a whole lot at that time. And I don't know. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I will say this, and David Dakota and I said this, after all is said and done... I wouldn't change one thing about the fan because then it wouldn't be the movie that I love. Yeah. It's a, it's a top five. I know that sounds crazy guys. It's a top five favorite of mine. And I don't totally grasp why, but I've done everything that I could to peel away all the layers to be like, okay, it's, it's slasher film. I like slasher films. It has gay camp. I like gay camp. It has 80s vibe. It has this. It has this. It has this. But it, at the end of the day, sometimes you just like movies and they hit you for, mm-hmm. and you don't know the magic reason. It um, checks off all of those boxes. Huh? I said it checks off all of those boxes of things that we love. Boxes, but I'm going to full circle this. <laughs> but the first box that was checked off was me watching that as a 15 year old teenager. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Super turned on and going, oh, oh, my God, this is porn. And, it, <laughs> and, and yet it was sad porn, if you think about it now. Yeah. But it was still male-to-male physical contact, which you did not nope. see in films at that time. And that started my love for this film. And I'm just kind of, I'll be honest, 
amused and totally thrown by the fact that this film has followed me for uh, <laughs> I'm going to show my age guys I turn 50 next year so this is show this is continued yeah. for the time I don't know why well it's a it's a great movie to 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 keep following you around your whole life yeah <laughs> but um I mean, this has been uh, so much fun. Thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us today. I thank you guys. I mean, again, I'm really uh, honored to be asked of something like this, and I, I I'm glad that um, you guys had been organically following my Instagram yeah. page, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, beforehand, so you knew, like, all right, well, this, let's see what this character is. <laughs> yeah, like definitely. I mentioned, like your Instagram account is a delight. Like, I love a good. 80s male stripper and that's probably like a good portion of your brand is <laughs> well, posting it's like funny. it's mm-hmm. funny because you probably already know this i had to split my account yeah two mm-hmm. because the instagram censors um are starting to crack down on everybody on yeah con- so i moved um my more strippery more offensive ish <laughs> kind of content over there and I still got a video pulled down as of Ugh. yesterday for uh, nudity or implied nudity or, you know, a little bit too much. To be fair, I was pushing the line with a stripper that I put up and I was like, let me see how far I'll go. But I <laughs> do believe that somebody on my page probably reported sure. it. Sure. Of course. Lame. Really sad yeah. Because don't you have a life? Whoever's yeah. report like, come on. Like, and why are you? And by the way. I think my page is pretty upfront. It's like it's a it's a, it literally says come for the what the fuck, stay for the comments. That's what it says. So if you're offended by my page, then you shouldn't be on my page. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. People just yeah. love to be trolls, but I do like to think that like the Instagram headquarters has your photo and your profile on like their their bulletin board of like with, accounts that you have to like with red yarn. Have to like keep track of every day (laughs) to me honestly i kind of feel it's flattering um i would really like to not have my account be yanked um because that would be i've put a lot of time into it and 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 i only put and i only started that account years ago when i broke up with a couple of relationships that didn't go south and i was left with this void of like I need to be creative. And then that just kind of took off and, and it went off in its own sort of spin. But even if they were taken down today, I'd be like, Hey, I'd been able to do it. I met a lot of great people. In cases, uh, scenarios like this right now wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And, uh, or I would never have met Mike Toscano or, uh, half a dozen other people. Um, and there's been some really good, positive things that have come out of that page. Um, and I just love the fact that I am able to go into my own weird brain, <laughs> pick out the silly, stupid stuff that I think about or that I find on these video on YouTube or my own videos or whatever like that. And I just post them out there and you guys have a blast. This can't ask for anything better than that. Definitely. Well, mm-hmm. why don't you tell uh, our listeners where, how they can find you on Instagram? What are those handles? Uh, uh, Jeffrey mixed. And then if you want to really go a little more hardcore, <laughs> it's Jeffrey mixed part two. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and don't report anything you see on there. You're going there yes. for a reason, <laughs> but thank uh, you again so much for coming on. 
This was a fun movie to talk about. I'm fu- I'm glad that we finally got to watch it. And we we did go out and buy the Scream Factory edition of it for our few, for our first viewing. Thank you. I love all Thank the Scream Factory stuff. We just got the oh, Friday. Yeah, we, bought it. we just got the Friday the 13th box set. Oh my god. It's so nice. That was a, you know, I'll tell you when I co-founded the uh, brand. Uh, I want to make very clear that I say the brand only because the company Shout Factory, of course, is created by other people. Right. But the Scream Factory silo, uh, me and another person, uh, Cliff McMillan, who is a producer on a lot of these Blu-rays, we're the ones who came up with the idea of that brand. And we never thought 570 plus movies wow. later and nine we're going on next year will be our 10 years of doing Scream Factory. And we still have more Blu-rays to announce we still have more films. We have more of these kind of hidden gems like the fan that are coming. And um, and it's fascinating because these are the movies I literally rented, watched. My mother told me not to watch. <laughs> now, um, they pay my rent um, now. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of funny um, that it's turned into anything. So when I'm hearing directly from someone like yourself – who said that you bought the Friday the 13th set, which was a lot of damn work. People lost their damn minds when that set was announced on my Instagram uh, feed. I know. Well, we, we, uh, we lost our damn minds uh, <laughs> putting it out there. Trust me. It was not an easy. Feed. Yeah. It's pretty but comprehensive, it's, but it's a legacy. You know, it's at the end of the day, like that is the permanent stamp on mm-hmm. Friday the 13th films. And we did it. Go- we did it. Well, there were some hiccups, Oh, my production team felt those and, you know, whatever. But um, yeah. we've moved past them. But for me, I'm just going to say this, and I know that we're coming to a close here. Out of all the films that we've put out, uh, the hundreds of films, yes, we've been lucky. And we've had the Halloween and Carrie's and Friday the 13th and Child's Play and the really big ones, the thing. I look out for, and I get more excited sometimes for the smaller ones, like the fan, like, I don't know. We just announced eyes of a stranger and he knows you're alone. And, uh, Michael Caine in the hand. And oh, yeah. these films, these are films that I am more like, Ooh, wow. We're putting out this film. I mean, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it just, it, it, it and in some levels we're preserving these films. I was really excited a few years ago when I saw that you guys did Gus Van Sant's Psycho because Pete and I are weird fans of that movie. And I was just really glad that that movie just got this proper Blu-ray release that like yeah. I'm just like the thought that was put into the Gus Van Sant Psycho was just for me. Well, well, I'll tell you that's good. I wouldn't say that it sold all that great. And there were debates about whether or not we put them out. But we also put out two, three, four and that seemed natural right. because yeah. Universal wasn't going to give us Psycho. Um, oh, well. In fact, actually, it's interesting you mentioned the Psycho films because uh, Universal wouldn't allow us to do collector's edition artwork on it because that property is so sensitive to them. Um, and yet we have artwork that was already uh, created for parts two and three that will never see the light of day. But other stories. There's always fun stuff behind the scenes. The fam was a lot of work, but it was a labor of love for me. So it never felt like work. And I'm just glad that it's finding new homes, new generations. And I realize we're out of time. 
Yes. Probably <laughs> well, talking your ear off too much. Oh no, that's okay. We love it. This is all. This is all great. It's all gold. But um, yeah, thank you so much again. This was wonderful. Thank you. Okay, so you stop recording. Um. Yeah. I mean, we're we we're, we got to wrap it up on our end. Oh, okay. So, you're yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do yeah. I say goodbye? Uh, yeah. We'll go ahead and we'll we'll do our we'll do our goodbyes. Sign off, and then um, yeah, we'll be good to we'll be good to go. We'll we'll have some little sign off music and all that good stuff. But we'll just say um, we'd love to have you on again in the future for something else. If uh, you know, if Hopefully if everything person, lines up, if everything goes according to plan <laughs> in 2021 with vaccinations. Yeah, well, I would love to meet you guys in person. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, this whole COVID thing and being locked in, you know, we're all making things work the way that it is. I mean, yeah. it's helped pass the time and, and stuff, but it is not the same as social interaction and in person. And I miss, I wasn't really a club person, but I, I'm tired of wearing my masks and not being yeah. able to, you know, double, double take somebody because everybody looks cute with a mask on. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> some people anyways right but um um well thank you guys and uh thanks for making my sunday a lot more pleasant i was looking forward to this awesome thanks so much thank you well, so much until we speak again goodbye Bye. and thank you so much everybody this was another fun one Love, love this episode. This episode. Love Jeff was a lot fan. of fun to talk to. We will post images of our Shout Factory Blu-ray of uh, Scream Factory Blu-ray of the fan. This wonderful, wonderful movie. But I think it's that time. Time to say hello and give a shout out to all of our wonderful Patreon shout outs. Yes, indeed. We want to say hi to Paul, Jamie, Drew, Jimmy, Genevieve, Don, Josh, Aaron, Melinda, Jim, Jessica, John, Nick, Christine, and Rafino. Thank you for being a friend. You can head over to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash movies that made us gay to check out all the different tiers that we have for Patreon exclusive material. By this time, by the time this episode comes out, our new newsletter for the month of March will be out. Our newsletter should have dropped by now. Mm -hmm. And also we should definitely have another watch with us commentary track. Yeah. So keep checking back to see what's going on there. We'd also love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. Smash uh, those five star yes, buttons indeed. to and the right. Write us a good review. Only write us a review if it's a good one, though. If you have a bad one. I don't want to hear a bad one. I don't want to hear it. But um, yeah, go over to Apple Podcasts and do that. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Movies That Made Us Gay. And Twitter at MTMUGpod. Yes, indeed. I'm Pete, and I am on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Lasagna. And I'm Oscar Scott on Twitter and Scott Youngbauer on Instagram. And look me up on Letterboxd at Scott Youngbauer. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week. Bye. Bye.